Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker Podcast. This week is all about SME and business banking across the UK and Europe. The 27th of February marked the recent Global Business Banking Summit held in London. The theme was an awakened focus on the business customer, and our team was on the ground to now be able to share the key insights, themes, and case studies from the event with you. Guests include Andy Booth, Managing Director of Business Banking at Barclays, Julie Baker, Head of Enterprise and Community Finance at RBS, Melinda Roylett, Head of Europe for Square, Stuart Doiny, Head of SME Banking at Starling Bank, and Mark Bernardi, General Manager for APAC at Encino. Today I'm joined by Andy Booth, Managing Director for Business Banking at Barclays. So you've just come off the stage at the Global Business Banking Summit. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So with the shift to digital ever increasing, what tools for relationship managing are you practicing at Barclays in a digital first world? So Barclays, we view serving our customers in a way where we're relationship based, but we're digitally driven. So we've always looked at it many years. You know, that's, that's been our strategy for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we talk about relationship managers now, you know, I think of it as three E's in terms of how those RMs are actually becoming data and digitally powered themselves. Mm-hmm. And these are all driven really by API and cloud-based apps and services that stretch far beyond the old ways of managing your relationship digitally, which was on a spreadsheet, on mm-hmm. bits of paper. So, you know, if you think about those, the first thing I think about is efficiency, right? So, as, you, as I've just said, RMs used to manage their portfolio customers on paper, on spreadsheets, on files in, in Word. Now, all those documents and the preparedness for a, for a client meeting is all in one place, and that makes for a far more efficient interaction. Definitely. Secondly, is about expertise and education. You have a, a wealth of opportunity now to feed in insights at an industry level and drive real industry expertise with the relationship manager uh, through their training, but also on tap. Uh, through those kinds of services and those uh, those are things that we've also been piping into our relationship management base for quite some time and that just raises the level of conversation and the level of support that you can have uh, in terms of understanding a client's business at a a quite different level than was in the past and also it accelerates as you hire new relationship managers it accelerates their learning and understanding and the final E I would say is energy and I, I say energy because the days of relationship management being a passive activity, i.e. Mm. you phone your relationship management once in a blue moon, you're not really sure who it is, they are long gone. Yeah, what or is it's it? for an issue. Or it's for an issue, exactly. And, and now, actually, I think it's all about being proactive and being personalized. Now, the reality is when you've got a, a whole bunch of, of clients and relationships, being on top of their day-to-day transactions and activity mm. is impossible in a manual world. In a digital and data-driven world, that is totally possible. So we can uh, power the relationship management with insights and what the clients want. They actually want actionable insights, things that they can take action on uh, in order to save money or make money or grow the business or manage cash flow. And those are the things that you can get through providing data, AI insights through straight through to the RM. Yes, AI has been such a focus at the start of the year. It is such a key point into really delivering that customer experience across business and consumer banking. So what other opportunities do you see for improving satisfaction across this space? I think the AI elements and the actionable insight elements are critical. 
one of the, I think, powerful things that you can get through some, uh, some of the API and cloud-based services that you can offer scenarios and scenario planning uh, mm. with customers. So, for example, you may talk through different alternative uh, sources of finance and the impact of different, whether it's an asset finance product, whether it's an invoice finance product, whether, whether it's uh, a loan or an overdraft, you'll be able to automatically generate those kinds of insights and those kinds of options for clients very, very quickly. So I think the, the big improvements will be in accelerating the breadth of understanding uh, mm. of the options that you can put in front of clients and doing that on tap. Yeah, that's incredible having that fourth side you can share with them so they kind of have a clear exactly. projection of what to expect. Yeah. That's great. So Brexit, obviously something we can't miss. There's still a lot of uncertainty around Brexit. Um, I've read recently that you've launched some advice clinics for your SME clients. Yeah. Can you share a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so it's, look, it's an interesting time. Uncertainty continues and it's probably continued longer than anyone would have hoped. Mm -hmm. What we have decided to do is through the month of March, we have about 100 Brexit clinics that are taking place across the country. Uh, we have used our data to understand which of the SMEs who are that most pertinent to. Mm -hmm. We've invited those SMEs to those clinics. In those clinics, we'll basically be looking at you know, some of the classic topics that might be top of mind for our client base at this time, which uh, may be about you know, exporting. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be about labor. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of our clients employ uh, EU citizens, certainly about cash flow and, uh, and financing as well. So trying to look across a very broad array of topics mm -hmm. uh, and deliver those in an integrated way. So actually, you know, we'll have groups of SMEs that are together and can help each other as well. I think, again, we've got a generation of SMEs basically who've never really, you know, particularly if they've just traded within Europe, mm -hmm. have really not been exposed to the complexities of, of becoming a truly export business where, where there are boundaries and customs and taxes and, and issues and supply chains to worry about. So um, it's a big education piece. Yeah, and it would be great in that group setting as well. They can kind of bounce off each other and have shared experiences or trials, tribulations they're facing. Yeah, as well. I think that's one of listen. That's one of the big assets that I think a bank like Barclays can bring to mm. its SME client base. We've got over a thousand branches. It is not difficult for customers to connect with other SMEs. We've launched our Eagle Labs program, which is a, a means again for customers to connect with each other and learn from each other, not only SMEs with SMEs, but SMEs with personal customers, SME wow. corporate customers as well. It's not only just office space, it's structured learning, it's programs, it's networking. So it's a whole suite of stuff that the customers can access because we are Barclays. That's incredible. They're two great initiatives available for your customers. And I guess conversations beyond the Brexit topic, what are some of the kind of challenges that your SME customers are facing beyond upcoming regulatory uncertainty? Look, cash flow is, if you ask any SME, it's always worries about cash flow that, that, that comes to the fore. Uh, and I think Brexit will just exacerbate that. So while clients are worried about that, I think what they're seeing is that what we're not seeing is that there's a fear around access to funding at the moment. Okay. So there is a range of funding sources available. Even at Barclays in the last few months, we've, we've announced our partnership with Market Invoice, which is a, a really critical tool. And so that's invoice financing. That's a really critical tool for SMEs, particularly heading into Brexit and uncertainty in terms of managing that cash flow on tap. So I think while there are concerns around cash flow, what they're seeing is an increasing number of solutions and we're trying to help them on those solutions in which they can manage that they can manage that cash flow situation. Yeah, definitely a great partnership to be providing yeah. that solution directly to your customers so they don't have to go beyond the Barclays offering. Yeah. So finishing up, 
what new business models will dictate the future of business banking? What do you see for the year ahead? What I think we will see is a proliferation of propositions and offers and services that SMEs can access and proliferation of data as well. With open banking, uh, we'll see lots of opportunities to share data or you know, use data in different ways from different sources, whether it's your digital wallet, whether it's your current account. And I think what will happen is we will see those models continue to exist. So we'll see lots and lots of very discrete, focused models. I think we'll also see an interesting move for a point of natural aggregation. Mm-hmm. for SMEs, i.e. where do you want to put all your data and where do you want to sort of focus all your your management of your financial affairs and potentially more than that as well. I think the future will power SME growth in the UK, which is a great thing. Wonderful. Andy, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm joined by Julie Baker, Head of Enterprise Business Banking at RBS. Julie, thanks for your time. Thank you. Great to be here. So you've just come off the stage on an all-female panel about personalization and how it is such a key focus within banking at the moment. So what do you think is needed to achieve true personalization through product and service? That's a really, really interesting question. And today's customers are more tech-savvy and demanding different banking service tailored to their requirements than we've seen before. Mm. And that goes across all segments, uh, all age groups. Um, So we need as banks to think beyond the traditional products, so beyond current accounts, loans, mortgages. Um, So what does that mean? So it means that we're looking at other services, products and advice that can be delivered to our customers in an efficient way. Um, So that may mean partnering with fintechs, Mm -hmm. looking at other ways to provide service and products to our customers being more than just a provider of financial services. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing that rise of these banking ecosystems and the partnerships between banks and fintechs and other tech players as well and how it's just so mutually beneficial. So personalization, there's a lot involved, there's a lot of technology involved. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges to achieving true personalization? I suppose disruption is getting more rapid, faster when it comes to the banking industry. So where do I see this going? Well, I see the banks having to listen to their customers, their needs, and and probably understanding their challenges and actually working with partners with fintechs to overcome some of those challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, an example of that is probably on the accounting front, making tax digital, particularly Mm -hmm. for SMEs. Uh, We see a lot of banks now partnering with cloud accounting, firms and for example um, RBS themselves bought the agent around about 18 months ago and our Mm. customers are finding that really really beneficial. When it comes to developing new products and services to what extent do you take this customer feedback on board? So obviously you know your relationship managers are having constant communications with your clients and every business owner has different needs but can you share any examples of new initiatives launched by the bank that have originated from customer feedback? Yes, and I think is the length of time it has taken traditionally to get a loan sanctioned, uh, particularly for SME customers. And what we've been working on and with within our mainstream sort of product range, but also with a fintech called ESME, Electronic mm-hmm. SME Lending, which we do own, is a digitization of actually lending to SME customers. So what does this do? Well, it makes it far more 
rapid, if you like, for the customer use, simple to use, they get an answer and they can get the money in their account once it's sanctioned within minutes. Oh wow, that's incredible. Because yeah. that has been such a barrier. Sometimes it takes months even to get a no answer. Absolutely. That's yeah. you know industry wide. So yes, anything definitely. we can do to speed up that process um, has got to be beneficial. And of course, technology today allows us to do that. As you mentioned earlier, you are partnering with a bunch of fintechs and other technology companies. Also, on the other side, competition increasing with fintechs and more disruption. How does a big bank such as yourselves continue to remain competitive and ahead of the game when it comes to financial services and banking? That's a really interesting question and our priority has always got to be to serve our customers well and we've got to acknowledge the needs of our customers are changing. So it is our responsibility to look at the services and products that we do provide, hence why we have partnered with fintech so that we can offer different services and alternative services to what we have done before and, and offer many different channels. So we've still got the traditional branch network but also digital channels, telephony, mm. online and of course the business banking app. And then with the impending Brexit, how do you think this is impacting the business banking sector? How are you seeing this? For us as a bank, it's our number one priority to continue to serve our customers as we do today with as little change as possible, whatever happens with Brexit mm. and none of us know yet. Um, we are committed to providing customers and colleagues with expert knowledge, assisting them both with opportunities and challenges that will be presented by um, Brexit. And how are we doing this? Well, we've got questions and answers, both for our colleagues and customers. We've got a Brexit hub and we have got an expert Brexit team that updates oh, wow. us almost daily at the moment <laughs> with uh, what is happening. Wonderful. So you've got everyone there on board ready to educate your customers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Julie. It's been wonderful to have you on yeah, the show. You're welcome. I'm joined by Melinda Rowlett, Head of Europe for Square. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Melinda, can you start by sharing a bit about your role? What do you do at Square? Uh, so my role is I'm the Head of Europe for Square. So that's leading the team across Dublin and the UK market, bring our Square services, you know, from the US to the UK. Mm -hmm. Very excited to be here, joined in July. Uh, and Square UK is going into its third year now, so um, that's exciting. Uh, so I do everything from, you know, helping uh, find extra car parking spaces for our team in Dublin to working with the US on the product roadmap to you know working with the sales and marketing teams here in the market. So a huge role, it sounds like. Yeah, no, it's very exciting, lots of variety, which uh, keeps me on my toes. So yeah, it's great. Wonderful. And can you share a bit about what developments you're seeing when it comes to payments needs for merchants in today's climate? Yeah, so the biggest thing is really the trend away from cash towards cards. And so we're seeing some, you know, some pretty big shifts there. Um, in 2005, we had 64% of purchases in the UK were cash. In 2015, that's down to 45%. And in 2025, that's down to 27% conservatively. So it's really this move to, towards cards and other ways that customers want to pay. That's one of the biggest trends we're seeing. Another trend we're seeing is that people want a seamless experience, you know, no matter where they shop. And so if I buy something online and I want to return it in store, that process is expected to work very well. Mm. If I do see something, you know, online, I want to be able to buy it in store. So being able to track inventory across different places. And so 
that whole trend towards omnichannel is very important as well. Yeah, definitely. So a big focus for Square has been around targeting businesses that are not yet part of the credit and debt card economy. Mm-hmm. So for these customers who are kind of completely new to this space, how do you go about approaching them? Yeah, so you know, there are 5.9 million small businesses in the UK and we know about 3 million of them don't accept cards. And so um, yeah, a lot of the larger businesses to some extent do, but it's sort of really small like nano businesses mm. that you know we've always been focused on as Square. Um, you know, ever since the beginning, our CEO Jack Dorsey, he pretty much created Square in the US when he wanted to buy a vase off a, a friend and uh, the friend didn't you know obviously couldn't accept a credit card ten years ago using their phone. Yeah. He was like, This is crazy, um, you know, we've got these computers in our uh, pockets, like why can't you know why can't he accept credit cards? And so that's how you know very much Square was founded and the whole idea of Square is around economic empowerment of small businesses. So yeah, it's very much around um, these people who also might have a business. One example is Hugo from Hamble and Bread in Oxford. Mm. Um, him and his partner, you know, after another business they were working on ended, decided to set up a bakery because it had always been her dream. And so very much they're a two-person operation. And so, you know, are they consumers or are they businesses? You know, sometimes they're each. And so really getting to those sellers is about using a lot of the ways that we do for consumers. So getting to them and telling them about what we do through um, mass media. Mm. You might have seen our television commercials and our mm. radio advertisements. So um, we find that's very effective of raising awareness of Square. Um, also, we do a lot of work with local communities, you know, in Darwin and Hollywell. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of grassroots efforts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of MPs in those regions to really raise the awareness of Square. Nice. So with increasing competition in the space, how how else do acquirers such as yourselves continue to stay ahead in the market, continue to differentiate yourself? Yeah, well, one of the things I've loved about joining Square is how incredibly customer-centric the company is. And so um, we, there's a lot of ways this manifests. You know, firstly, you know, when we speak about our product roadmap, we don't really talk about features and functionality, but it's like what jobs can be done. So what are the struggles that small businesses have if it's, you know, raising enough money to be able to buy inventory or you know, being able to process different types of you know, new payments. And so you know, it's very much about, I think, staying close to the customer. I took the whole of the UK and Dublin teams up to Oxford the other week and uh, we met lots and lots of sellers and got feedback from them about what their struggles were, what jobs they needed to do. And uh, that was really, really interesting as well. So I think um, in order to you know, be successful is around staying close to the customer and also about investing in technology and one of the great things about Square is we own the hardware in terms of the reader and the software and so that provides us with the ability to be able to you know, have a really clean always up ecosystem and so mm. their investments at Square makes quite considerable investments and we find that they pay off in terms of the customer experience. It's great to see how you're really getting on the ground and face to face with these people to get their feedback to then structure your strategy from there as well mm. and then what's next for Square can you share much about the year ahead with us yeah no, there's lots of exciting things and so you know one of the things I'm most excited about in the UK is the launch that we had in April actually of our cash app so it's very much about Square um, starting to provide some of its uh, services to consumers and mm. so um, with a cash tag you can easily and quickly mm-hmm. uh, send money to your friends so you have no excuse for not paying them for that late night out or yeah. anything you need um, I shouldn't talk too uh, much about the product roadmap at this stage but if you look at the US we've just launched um, our terminal product there which mm-hmm. is integrated software and hardware so 
Um, so that's an exciting development and we're looking forward to launching that in the UK at some stage. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, we've got a whole lot of products and we're increasingly working you know, with the, the teams in our headquarters to bring all that goodness to the UK market. Well, Melinda, thank you so much for your time and sharing those insights into Square. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to chat. Today I'm joined by Stuart Joyney, Head of SME Banking at Starling Bank. Congratulations, what a big couple weeks. Thank you. Very exciting news for Starling last week. Can you share a bit about your grant and the plans for investment? So everyone at Starling is incredibly excited about achieving the 100 million from the CIF grant. I think it, go, it goes some way into kind of showing how far Starling's come in the market in terms of starting off in the early days and really showing what we can build with great technology, you know, with not having all of that legacy uh, system problems that you see from some of the incumbent banks. Um, we've got extremely exciting plans for the money, so I think it would be, be common, uh, everyone can kind of go out there and look at some of the public commitments that we've made as Starling Bank, but at a very high level, we're, we're kind of creating close to 400 new jobs. Wow, that's uh, incredible. Yeah, so, so, so this is going to come across the whole bank, so we're going to see you know, an influx of hiring of our engineers, operational staff, everyone to kind of support our vision for you know, the SME bank of the future. Mm. And along with the 100 million coming from the CIF, Starling have also committed close to that number ourselves in terms of co-investment. So we're recognising that you know, we also want to really invest in SMEs and the SME bank of the future and kind of giving our SMEs all of the solutions they need to kind of thrive in the marketplace. And having had that business banking offering for almost a year now, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the SME business banking space in the past year? Okay, so I think one thing that we've, we've seen is that there's been a big shift in the market around SMEs and their willingness to use a digital bank. I think um, you know, if, if we were to rewind you know, five, ten years ago, the concept of an SME banking with a, a mobile bank on the phone mm. would have been a foreign concept. But I think what we're finding now is the concept of mobile banking is, is, is changing. And I think the attitude of SMEs for using this technology is really, really changing. And I think what Starling has done is we're very well placed to act on that. So we're digital only. You know, we've built our solutions from scratch and we're able to kind of do something very different in the market. One big change that we've seen in the market is also, because we're offering free banking out there for, for businesses at the moment, we've seen a lot of people that are starting to use a business account for the first time. So lots of those micro-enterprises that you know, were, were always just using their retail bank account for, mm. for their day-to-day banking, we're actually giving them a solution now to have free banking for their business. That's amazing. And we're seeing similar trends amongst our research as well, that SMEs, the, the trust they have towards digital-only players is definitely increasing, particularly with things like payments or lending. So that's good to see how that's playing out for you as well. Definitely. So on that digital-only topic, how are you fostering trust amongst your customers and potential customers? The first important thing is the fact that we are actually a bank. So I think you know that there are a lot of competitors out there at the moment that you know, have mobile-only offerings and they're not actually banks. So I think that's, that's the first key thing in fostering trust with our customers. And also I think you kind of have to earn that trust. So for us, we'll be judged on always being there, always being available. I think you know the point we're not available, then that trust starts to break down. Mm. And at Starling, we've committed to you know 24-7 customer care support so we're, we're always there for our customer as part of the solution and then in terms of relationship management how do you add the personal touch to your business owners when it is through digital yeah so this is part of our plans actually so mm-hmm. with the 100 million grant that we won a key part of our strategy moving forward is 
is to bring that relationship management capability um, to, to our SMEs, but we'll be doing it in a different way. So we're going to mm. be doing it in a very digital way. So at the moment, uh, you know, our thoughts are around creating almost that, that virtual relationship manager network. So, yeah. you know, an SME, should they need to speak with someone or engage with someone or a specialist to suit their needs, they're going to be able to either speak to them via video chat on, on their mobile device, mm-hmm. or alternatively, they can schedule an appointment to the minute of exactly wow. when they're free to actually have that conversation. So we're enabling them to have those conversations without visiting a physical branch. Mm. We think that will resonate with our customers. Yeah, and it does tie in with the classic story of the busy business owner, SME, entrepreneur, you know, never having free time. So that's quite nice how that yeah. fit in with that lifestyle as well. Yeah, and I think an important factor as well is we are going to be not just uh, mobile banking in the future. So mm-hmm. we've committed as part of our plans to also build internet banking. Oh, wonderful. To yeah, so we're going to be kind of multi-device enabled. So we recognise that not all customers will be happy to use a mobile or we might be times or things they want to do you know, mm. on a desktop. Uh, so we're going to have to give our customers the ability to do that. That's great. And talk to me more about your marketplace offering. So you have a number of partners on there now, um, and that's continuing to grow. So how do you determine which partnerships will truly add value for your business and also your customers? Okay, so I guess the first point here about our business marketplace is we do listen to our customers. So we've got a very, very good group of uh, SMEs that are using us today who are very vocal around saying you know, what they'd like to see. I think that's driven a lot of our early partnerships that we've done on marketplace, mm-hmm. such as Zero, and I think we've, we've got free agents coming next and we've also got um, some exciting lending partnerships as well which are going to be forming but what we're really looking to do on marketplace is to give our customers access to the solutions we think they really need to succeed so these are the things that you know are really going to make their lives a lot easier and fit in with the whole styling brand and and how Mm. we do things I think for for marketplace as well we we really want to deliver that connected experience so we don't want to just add people onto the marketplace where the customer has to go through a completely you know completely separate onboarding experience we're looking to bring partners on board where they can integrate with our own technology and also give our customer a seamless experience and importantly give them the choice and I think in terms of numbers of marketplace partners we've committed to adding 48 partners over the next kind of three four years that's a minimum off Uh, so I think you'll probably see around at least 12 to 14 or so partners coming on each calendar year that's great as, as, as we grow up the bank a really exciting time for Starling at the very, moment. Very exciting to, and for our customers as well. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Mark Bernhardi, General Manager APAC for Encino. Mark, thanks for joining me. Thanks Adele. Thanks for having me. So having launched in the Australian market just six months ago now, how has the experience been so far? Can you tell us a bit about your journey? Yeah, sure. It's been an exciting time to be in Australia. In the last uh, six months, we've seen a lot of disruption. Uh, it's the back of the Royal Commission that mm. recently came out. Increased focus on some poor behaviour and, and potential poor controls in certain lines of business. At the same time, there's, a, there's quite a bit of market uncertainty. There's a lot of discussion around housing prices and, and banks are starting to look for where the next revenue growth is going to be. Mm. And we've seen a lot of exciting new entrants to the market with digital banks going after specific services. So it's a great time for us to, to be in the market. Being at this event in the UK, I see a lot of similarities. Uh, so in Sina, I think we're well positioned to take some of the learnings that we've taken from the US and the UK mm-hmm. and bring those into the Australian market to help provide that advisory partnership yeah, to definitely. some of our customers. I think it's always great having use cases that have worked in other markets and it's kind of 
easier in a way to apply similar practices exactly. in that market. Exactly. I think there's a, there's a universal market and there's a lot of lessons that we should be sharing across the board. And so as a cloud-based platform, platform, how do the commercial and SME banking parts of the platform work? So what efficiencies are they mostly trying to solve for banks and other financial institutions? It's a good question. I think platform is a very overused word mm. uh, in the digital place. And um, from an Encina perspective, we believe it's about bringing the right tools and services to meet that specific need. So when we think about commercial and SME banking, we think about financial analysis, we think about credit, we think about content management, and at the heart of all of that, we think about the CRM. Mm. We believe that by bringing all of these services together, but within a common language, and what I mean by that is a consistent data model around the customer, we truly believe that we give the bankers the right tools to solve for where they need to go, mm. and also the flexibility to get there quickly. So it's not just about putting a whole lot of packages together, if they don't talk to each other in a consistent way, then you really haven't moved the dial in the right direction. With respect to efficiencies, if you give the bankers the tools that they need to do to do their job, then they're going to do that a lot quicker and they'll identify areas where they can introduce automation. And by not having to also rekey all that data, they end up spending a lot more time talking to their customer and creating more opportunities to give them advice on the right products to meet their needs. So what we've seen in, in, I think we've done about just over 200 banks to date, is that we've seen a significant improvement in loan processing times up to about 80%, because wow, you introduce that automation straight through. We've seen about an 85% increase in loan volumes at the same time. So what that means is that your bankers who were previously spending time moving stuff through the system are now able to spend more time originating and by creating that digital engagement platform as well, you provide customers with the self-serve ability to start the process themselves. Mm. So it's really creating efficiencies throughout that whole workflow right to the end user and the customers. Exactly. So in, in the increasingly competitive environment that we're in now and with regulatory changes opening up all sorts of new players um, entering the market. How do you think financial institutions can really manage risk and also profitability, finding that kind of balance between the two? Uh, one of the things that we think about with risk is about providing a full and complete view of your customer. If you know more about your customer, if you have more information about your customer and you get that information in a timely manner, then you're in a better position to make a more accurate risk assessment. Mm. And that's really our focus, is how do we empower bankers to give them the information they need at the time they make that decision. And it's not just a point in time, it's an ongoing assessment. A customer's circumstances change. Mm. So we're excited about a lot of the new technologies that are starting to, to come forth. In one regard it's open banking, in others it's just using alternative data sources to provide real-time feeds into the bankers and to provide them automated alerts when situations are starting to change so that bankers can take action prior to the situation getting um, terribly worse. Mm. From a profitability perspective, we really have a very simple view of the world. You've got revenue and then you've got cost of borrowing and then you've got that piece in between. Mm. And to date, the biggest component that comes out of that piece in between are operating costs. Mm. So things that we can do to materially improve or reduce that operating cost is ultimately going to have an impact on the bottom line. 
And so if we continue to think about efficiencies, reducing manual processes and reducing the time for a loan to move through the, the end-to-end process, well, that translates into a lower operating cost and a lower cost to service that line, which ultimately drives the profitability. Mm. How do you ensure that the customers have a good understanding of AI and the machine learning that's on offer? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a hot topic at the moment, and, and I know something that's been discussed a bit here uh, in the UK. So, so to answer your question, we bring a point of view. You know, with all the research that we've done, we believe that using AI to help the banker is the best way right now to surface the capabilities of AI. As we've seen in the discussion, I mean, AI is really good at just crunching data and delivering insights. And if we can put those in an easier, more consumable way into the hands of our bankers, then ultimately we're going to get better customer experiences. But with that said, AI is a continually evolving space. And one of the things that we're proud of at Encino is we work with our customers to understand where they're going. Uh, so we embark on a number of co-design initiatives where we'll sit down with the bankers and understand the problem that they're looking to solve, the tools that we have within the platform, and then work with them to understand how those tools can be applied to solve the problem. I have no doubt it's going to continue to grow. We have a really good value proposition uh, that we'll be looking to launch this year. But going forward, I think it will be an area we'll continue to invest in heavily and work with our customers to understand the problem that they need to solve and how AI can help them solve it. And then in the Asia-Pacific region, how do you help advise your customers what kind of strategies to actually implement? Now that technology continues to build, there's more mm. and more choice, right? Mm. So how, how do you kind of inform them as to which path to go down first? It's going to be, uh, it's definitely going to be varying by customer. You know, we've been fortunate that in the, um, the six months that we've been uh, in Australia, we've established two customers, uh, one in the non-bank space um, and one in the traditional bank space. And through dialogue, uh, we learn about where they are situated in their digital transformation journey and, and where they are ready to deploy and, and use AI. Mm -hmm. That said, we also spend a lot of time talking to other fintechs. One of the roles we see in a partnership with our customers is not only to talk about our technology, but having an end-to-end -end platform allows us to tap into a broader fintech sector within Australia and New Zealand and explore with them on how their technologies can be integrated within our platform to further surface more enriching information to bankers. It may be AI, it could just be more types of different data. So the answer is, it depends. I think that with every bank and depending on where they are on their digital journey, as partners, we're there to provide advice. And I think by using the information, like we said earlier, that we get out of the UK and the US, we can provide those options, we can provide that information. Ultimately, the customer needs to work out what's best for their business and best for their customer. So when it comes to working with organizations and really driving that digital transformation from a technology side, how do you ensure that from a cultural perspective that that's really adopted throughout the organization as well? It's a great question. And I think coming back to the earlier comments we were making about getting rid of the legacy architecture, um, a lot of banks need to recognize that their teams have also now evolved their processes and ways of work around that same architecture. So as you start to shift the paradigm from that legacy stack to something that becomes a customer-centric design, and not only that, but you actually provide them tools where they're empowered to actually make the changes and get information that they never used to have before, you also need to invest in making sure that you've taken your people along on that journey. And through that empowerment, you've given them the confidence and the understanding and the training to be able to use that information to make real change. Too often we've heard a lot of conversation in banks where they say, well, I understand what needs to be done. I've 
you know, written out the requirement and then I drop it into this black hole mm. and I never see it surface again. And that's truly what I think from a digital platform perspective you really want to change is you've got the people on the front line that know exactly what needs to be delivered for that experience. And if you can give them the tools to be able to do some of that themselves, you move away from a throwing things over a wall to actually working together as a team to deliver those customer outcomes. So mm -hmm. as we go into these investments with our customers, we're strong advocates for investing in change management and making that investment into people, recognizing that you're fundamentally shifting the platform from which they used to work. Mm. You're giving them new opportunities, but you need to help and educate and train and make that investment for them to really use that effect. Yeah, to get on board and believe in it as well. Exactly. In the heavily digital environment of today, how can institutions ensure that they deliver a valuable customer experience and really maintain those strong client relationships and offerings through those digital channels? It's a very uh, topical conversation at the moment and one that I see a lot of division of thought um, around. On one hand, we have uh, strong institutions with a strong customer base who have a very deep and expansive legacy architecture. Mm -hmm. There are a number of projects that I've seen where they've tried to wrap that legacy architecture into a digital world um, and try and surface that up to their customers as a digital experience. And then on the other hand, we have these startup digital banks that are starting with an absolutely clean slate and then quickly delivering a full digital experience for a fraction of the cost of some of the big bank programs. Across all of these, we believe that a common theme is really from a digital transformation perspective, having complete focus on customer-centric design. Mm. Understand the journey that you want to deliver to your customer first and foremost. Do not think about the technology that you actually have in the shop. And once you map out that customer experience, then you start to think, well, where does my technology plug into that experience? And not the other way around. I think there's been some really interesting discussion points around the need to work around your legacy architecture and not necessarily on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we see some exciting opportunities for some of the larger institutions, which I feel to date have felt anchored and frustrated by their legacy architecture. And in some cases, we've seen those same banks start some digital spin-offs. And yeah. so you go, well, we, we really don't want to face that problem, so we're going to start with something completely new mm. and look and feel like a digital bank. But in Encino, we really believe that if you can bring in the right platform and start with that customer-centric journey, that you actually do have assets within the bank that you can just plug into that journey. And if you take that approach, and we have actually taken this methodology to market and have proven that it's worked, then you can still achieve delivering that digital experience without being encumbered by your own technology. Mm, yeah. And so as soon as you take a product system or a core banking system and you say, okay, now I'm gonna take that same system and I'm gonna do a digital experience, well, you're inherently gonna be anchored by the system and processes that are inherent in that system, which were previously designed for something completely different. Exactly. And I know it's still early days in the Australian and wider APAC region, but what can we expect from Encino over the coming year, say? We're very excited. Um, we're very early in our journey. Um, we've got a number of opportunities that we've been talking to in the region. Our focus uh, in the immediate future is in the Australian New Zealand market. Uh, we think there are a lot of similarities with areas where we've operated before, and we naturally want to leverage our expertise, experience, into their market. That said, we, we see 
quite a lot of change happening in Southeast Asia with regards to cloud. And I think, you know, in our experience, that adoption of cloud and becoming more comfortable with cloud is a key transition point uh, for banks to begin that digital transformation journey. So we've seen some exciting things coming out of Southeast Asia. I think we need to retain focus. So we're remaining focused on the task at hand, mm. uh, but keeping a close eye on Southeast Asia and, and what uh, changes are taking place there. Wonderful. Well, it'll be really exciting to follow the journey of Encino across Australia and New Zealand and see how that all pans out in the coming years. Thanks, Mark, Adele. thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To view the full show notes and for more content on the podcast, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. For updates on upcoming episodes, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at RFI Group. Or if you're interested in being a part of the show or would just like to let us know what you thought of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.